0: That's HeritageRadio Network.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com.
0: I'm HRN's Communications Director Kat Johnson with a preview of the next episode of Meet and Three, our weekly food news roundup. We're fresh off our trip to Slow Food Nations in Denver, a festival that brought together advocates to discuss the future of food. And this week, we're bringing you a special episode inspired by the new Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Manifesto released by Slow Food USA. If we're going to solve food security, we need to say these people have a right to good, healthful food. But we have to do that in a way that kind of insulates this system from the vagaries of the market. Because when
1: you're at a table with somebody, you recognize their humanity. And when somebody cooks for you and serves you food, in a way, they're saying they care about your survival.
0: How can we put things into our own hands and have the people of Puerto Rico gain real access to healthy local foods? Listen to Meat and 3 this week for our highlights from Slow Food Nations. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, a food writer and director of the New York Japanese Canary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Obardos in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond the sushi? We hear dashi-ram in zakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guests today are David and Joshua K, the two brothers who opened an authentic 8 seat sushi restaurant in Upper East Side called Sushi Nozu in March, and with Chef Nozo whose nickname is Nozu. Sushi had become a part of American diet, and now we see more authentic sushi restaurants, particularly in New York City. So today we'll discuss what the authentic sushi culture is, and how two young Americans open a classic sushi restaurant, and Chef Knoth's unique style of sushi, and much, much more. But quickly, before we start, Japan Needs is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and on Spotify, as well as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We appreciate your feedback. Also, uh, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. And you can email us at japaneats at the Heritage Radio dot org. And uh, we are running uh, a summer membership drive right now. So please go to uh, the Heritage Radio dot org website and uh, uh, become a member. Thank you so much. Uh, so now let's start a conversation with the Team Sushi knows. Hello, welcome.
3: Thanks, Thanks for having us.
2: us. So... Uh, I have so many questions. First of all, uh, David and Josh, so what's your background? So first, uh, where did you go? Uh, did you grow up? And uh, what did you eat when you grew up?
3: So Josh and I were born on the Upper East Side, uh, just a few blocks away from the restaurant. Mm. So we, were, we grew up in Manhattan uh, our whole life. Josh has lived here his whole life, and I moved to Miami 10 years ago. Mm. But uh, we grew up, our parents were immigrants from Europe and from Iran, the Middle East. My mm. mom came from Iran then to Switzerland and from Switzerland to America. And my dad came from France to America in like uh, 1979.
2: Mm. So sounds like a interesting mixture of uh, delicious cuisine.
3: Very much so.
2: Wow.
4: So yeah, a lot of good, delicious French food, uh, a lot of incredible Middle Eastern food. The, the is The Iranian cuisine... Uh, ended up having such a big influence on both of us that even David ended up opening up a uh, sort of Middle Eastern-style restaurant in Florida Mm. uh, that is very, very, very much influenced by what my mom and my grandma would make for us as kids. Uh, But we also ate a lot of takeout, (laughs) (laughs) a lot of sushi takeout and a lot of Chinese takeout and a lot of pizza and hot dogs and all the things, you know, you sort of associate with growing up in New York Uh, so it's a, it, it was a very diverse amount of uh, cuisine that we were exposed to. Uh, some good, some great, some not so good. <laughs> mm, right. Yeah.
2: So out uh, of all those options, uh, so David, you decided to study sushi in Tokyo. So wh- how did it happen?
3: I was, after, uh, I was always a sushi uh, fanatic, eating a lot of sushi from when I could remember pretty much maybe 11, 10 years old, ordering sushi rolls and things like that and uh, then when I started being a little older I learned about omakase Mm. and I started like most people with uh, you know sushi seki, sushi asuda when I was young and and they got me and they taught me about the concept of sitting at a counter and having one piece of sushi at a time and I thought it was very interesting and unique and it was cool to see you, you know sushi done in a way that was not like you said in a box at a supermarket or in a roll with you know avocado Mm. and all these things in it so I was studying hospitality in university and then when I graduated I wanted to learn how to cook more Mm. and I spent some time learning in Barcelona how to cook and how to use a knife and how to break down fish so I decided one day uh, I want to keep learning how to break down fish I want to learn my knife skills and I want to see Asia and I had never been in my life so I told my dad I said dad what do you think said, listen, if you find a reason to go, you should 100% go. Mm. So I found this, uh, this very cool uh, sushi academy, which was called the Tokyo Sushi Academy mm. in Shinjuku. Right. And they do these eight-week courses where you uh, have like a group of 30, 40 people, half Japanese, half international students.
2: Mm. Wow. So the idea of sushi school... As far as I know, like, my dad would be angry to hear it (laughs) because it's, uh, you know, you have to learn uh, sushi by watching and suffering, like uh, probably Abe-san did. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. So, but uh, do you think that was... um, good learning
3: when I went I didn't go with the intention of becoming a, a sushi chef mm. you know I went with the intention of learning more about sushi mm. and learning more about Japanese culture and hopefully meeting people that would be able to one day help me out mm. and it was thanks to that trip and that idea that I was able to learn about Japanese cuisine and Japanese culture so very yeah. very. and let's good. not forget that's also the trip that
4: was the spark that that uh, started this whole project with yeah. Nas? It was through mm. a, a friend that we met there, who later introduced us to Nas. I, I visited David when he was in. Uh, mm. It was a perfect excuse for me to visit Asia for the first time. Yeah,
2: because you are uh, the you wanted to be musician, artist, or something. Like no,
4: so yeah, so I was working in the arts in the in the field of arts, not as an artist, but with artists. Uh, in a sort of management position with galleries and dealers and things like that with absolutely no intention of joining the restaurant business. Mm. And so when David was in Tokyo at the Sushi Academy, uh, the the second he sort of applied, I started looking for flights. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay, how are we going to do this? How am I going to get to Tokyo? And so uh, I spent a week with him there. And uh, I have to say that that week is a week I'll never forget because uh, David was still in school, and and he was working arduous hours. I mean, they they had them working, these students working really hard. It wasn't a holiday. And so I ended up spending uh, the majority of every day alone in Tokyo. Mm. And there's something incredibly romantic about being alone in in Tokyo Mm. in a place that's so foreign from anything you know where you clearly do not belong and and just trying to make your way through it. And... uh, and, I, and that was the first sort of sense of of wanting to be involved with Japanese culture that ever occurred to me. Oh. I mean, even like David said, when he was at the Tokyo the Sushi Academy, it, it wasn't because we were hoping to open a sushi restaurant wow. one day. I mean, so, that wasn't in the cards at all.
2: Well, but you immersed yourself into Japanese culture. like. You like dipped yourself, not oh, like completely. slowly, right? Yeah, so, so. And,
4: and like David said, like for him, he was. I mean, he, David has always, since he, he was ten years old, would analyze a menu at a restaurant like a chef would. But for me, uh, the the interest in Japanese culture actually wasn't derived necessarily from the food. Uh, I had a really good friend, a Japanese friend, growing up, Takefume, who introduced me to a lot of animated culture, anime culture, and. Uh, definitely the Japanese art was super interesting to me in college. Like I said, so I was studying art in college. So I actually approached uh, an interest in the Japanese sensibilities, not necessarily from a culinary perspective.
5: Mm.
4: And so it was when we went to Japan and uh, when I went to Japan to visit David and, and I was looking for places for us to eat that that I realized there's something really special going on, you know, in, in the Japanese kitchen.
2: Mm, what was the essence of it?
3: Josh, actually, when he came, he's... Josh is very diligent. He's uh, he's good at organizing things. He's, he, I remember he made an Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> 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 I, I, it's funny because I told the story earlier and I thought I only remembered it today with the 15 sushi restaurants that we wanted to go to in Tokyo. He had done the research on table log and found you know the 15 best and, and he said david this is this is the list i said yeah. okay so he gave the list to the concierge and the concierge ended up we were able to get a
4: few a few uh you know not the ones that like people are booking two years in advance but we ended up having some pretty amazing cuisine and, and to answer your question th- something that I, I later learned actually a lot from our our, our partner naz uh, this idea of the shokunin of mm-hmm. somebody who when they look at Food, or they look at their craft. There's a look in their eyes that you you see only in the most dedicated of people, and mm-hmm. and it's something that is inspiring. and And we'll talk about this when we talk about sushi naz a little bit more. But uh, guests who come to Nas, it's not just about experiencing great food, but it's about experiencing uh, someone being able to watch somebody who's just so inspired and dedicated and mm-hmm. doing what they love and. You know, when you're used to, in, in New York, when you go to a restaurant in New York, if you dare to step foot in the kitchen, it's like the circus,
5: mm-hmm. right?
4: And I mean, there's a whole beauty to that as well, but it's an entirely different experience. And uh, that struck me, Im- that struck a chord immediately. And I'm sure we'll talk about this later as well, but the, the, the carpenters who built our restaurant then took that to a whole other level for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I watched uh, three carpenters uh, delay two days of work to get one piece of joinery in just mm, right, and yeah. and that's something that really inspired me about Nas so early on, and about Japanese culture in general. Mm. And um, so yeah, that's what that's what grabbed me really quickly yeah. when we were in Tokyo. Sounds like the
2: the craftsmanship. Um, you know, the Japanese people like tradition and uh, I think goes along with uh, there's word ikigai mm, the yep. value of life exactly right? so that's the meaning of life and uh, all those craftsmen have that meaning yeah. in what they do mm. right? so and by the
4: way it should be mentioned that this was a time where David and I were looking for meaning in our lives you know mm. David has, was just out of college uh, a year or two out of school and I was very much still in school and very unsure of what the future was holding for me
5: mm. so
4: that it was a time we were both asking ourselves a lot of questions. And I don't know if we got answers, but, but it definitely had a, it def- definitely kept us thinking.
5: Mm,
2: right. Yeah. But I think uh, it's also the Japanese mind there's no end. You yeah, have there's to keep no end. pursuing. Of course, <laughs> there's no end. <laughs> right. So I think yeah. you are in the right track in <laughs> uh, your Ikigai <laughs> search. Right. So uh, now, so Crossman Nozisan. Uh, so I heard you've been uh, in making sushi for the last 18 years. So, uh, so where did you grow up and what, why did you decide to become a sushi chef in the first place? Okay,
6: so I was born, born and grew up in the Hokkaido, mm. so, which is the northern part of the Japan. So my hometown is so tiny. There is mm. a fish in my areas. My grandfather also has a seafood company. Mm. So he always teach me how to use a knife, how to sharpen mm. the knife. Wow. So how to preserve the fish? How to boil the crab? Uh, how to break the shell of the sea urchin? Mm. Open the crab? Uh, open the scallop? Yeah, he yeah. teach me so many about seafood. So uh-huh. I was yeah I wanted to be something like craftsman. Mm. Yeah, when I was kids. Yeah,
2: right. And also Kaido is really deep. Um, treasure box of seafood.
6: Oh, absolutely.
4: Right. It's like yeah. unique.
2: It's slightly different from other parts of Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right they there, yeah. say
4: the bays in Hokkaido, there's some magic in the water.
2: Right. Yeah. So, and the cold temperature. And everything. the cold temperature. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, anyway, so so where did you study sushi, Ino-san?
6: Uh I still study sushi. <laughs> <laughs> of course, That's yeah. That's the right answer. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, yeah. Uh, uh, first basic... Uh, I learned that sushi in my hometown mm. in Sapporo City, mm. and when I was seventeen, so I moved to the Sapporo City. So when I was twenty, and then I moved to the Tokyo, mm. and then I came in New York mm. when I was twenty-four. So I learned about the sushi in three locations. Mm.
2: So, um, so the you decided to come to New York City, and who, who, why did you come to New York?
6: Oh, uh, I am so embarrassed. So when I was a high school student, so I was into skateboarding, hip hop music, and fashion. So that made me want to live, especially in the New York City.
2: Mm, yeah. right. So it's interesting, right? And then you started working for Sushidan, which is one of the most mm-hmm. established, popular yeah. sushi restaurants in New York City. So and then you became uh, an executive chef. So that's very impressive. Um, So let's go back to David, Josh. Why did you open a sushi restaurant in New York City?
4: So uh, like I said earlier, uh, David and I, I don't think we ever had the intention of doing it. And it wasn't until we met Nas, and we tried his food at Sushi Den. And for the listeners who don't know about Sushi Den, it's a fantastic restaurant that is not necessarily known for its fine dining. It's popular among a corporate crowd, especially for lunch. It's in Midtown, of Manhattan, and so when we went for the first time after we met Nas to try his cuisine, we were expecting just that—a corporate lunch. We thought we were going to be spending thirty or forty dollars, uh, get some buri and maybe some tempura, <laughs> and uh, and what ended up happening, in fact, was that we were we were provided with an experience very similar to what we're now offering at Sushi Nas. Uh, it mm. was a two and a half hour. 25 course uh, meal that Naz had prepared for us. And David and I sort of looked at each other at the end of this meal, and we recognized that there was something going on with Nas, and that we wanted to be a part of it. Mm. I imagine that he could have just as easily have been a musician, or an actor, (laughs) (laughs) and we just heard his song on the radio, uh, or not on the radio, you know, we just heard him sing a song, and we said to ourselves, man, we want to be involved, you know, we could have just as easily have been that. It I wish we had
2: uh, some recording today to yeah. play. <laughs> I wish I
4: knew. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm saying he could have been, in, if he was a musician. Okay. It turns out he was a sushi chef. Yeah. And it turned out that we wanted to be a part of it more right. than anything.
2: Mm, but but you knew him. How did you find him?
4: So we we came in contact with some chefs in Tokyo who we, we had a sort of like a, we, a late night out with in Tokyo. And that chef was coming to New York. Uh, so this was in June or July. And he had a trip planned in September. And we got a phone call in September saying, "I'm in town. Do you guys want to get together?" And we said, "Sure." So we went to a hotel in Chelsea called the Americano Hotel, and I'll never forget it yeah. because it's the first time. Four now years now ago, right? yeah, four years ago. And uh, the chef didn't speak great English, and and so he he brought he brought along Nas sort of as a, I guess as a friend, but also as sort of a translator, and. Uh, and it was a funny crowd because that chef was much older than Nas and myself. I was 21 at the time. Nas was 27, 28, 29, 28, mm-hmm. 29. And, uh, and I had brought along one of my friends who was also much older than us. So it sort of worked out that those, the, the, the two of them were talking a lot and Nas and I were talking a lot. And we instantly connected. Mm. And that's when he told me he worked at Sushi Den. And he was like, oh, you should stop by for lunch next week. And, you know, the rest is...
2: Mm. History. Wow. Yeah. So it's a coincidence, but sounds like a destiny too. Yeah,
4: absolutely. Mm.
2: Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah. Well, the well, we just before the show, I. Well, it's kind of like a jump to the next step. But your restaurant Nozu, is running so well, even in the summertime. And congratulations. Ah, thank you. Right. Um, but uh, mm. when you open together, mm. the three of you together, what is the biggest challenge in opening a sushi restaurant?
4: Oh, my God. Well, so Nas just mentioned that we met four years ago. And we we shook hands on this uh, almost four years ago, very quickly after that. So this was a, a long, long process. And it's hard, looking back, to pick out what was the hardest part. But the first thing I think about when you say that is the, the logistics of having it built in Japan and having it shipped over here.
0: Mm.
4: We we went we had the crazy idea to have uh Sukiya daiku like T architects carpenters mm. from japan actually build our restaurant in kyoto
2: that's ridiculous yeah, it, <laughs> i would not I mean, be able to even imagine doing yeah, it
4: it really was ridiculous and it was as close to being impossible mm. without being impossible right. <laughs> and so the just the pure logistics of shipping over all of that uh, material, we, I think we shipped over over a thousand pieces of wood, mm. stone and sand. Uh, to New York that was a challenge I think at one point we thought maybe we wouldn't be able to overcome it Mm. and we were
2: but what's the the, whose idea was that
4: Uh, so you yeah so uh, I have a sort of a sense a mentor who's been sort of my guiding uh, force in all things Japanese for a long time actually my childhood friend that I told you about earlier Mm. it's his father uh, Koichi Anagi who actually has a wonderful art gallery in Manhattan a, a a great Japanese art gallery. And uh, when I had run the idea by him of opening a, a Japanese restaurant, he set out some rules for me.
5: Mm.
4: And one of the rules that he told me was that if you're going to do this, you're going to do it right. Mm. <laughs> and so he introduced me to the carpenters uh, who built his gallery. And yeah. I went to visit them. They were in Chiba. Is that right? No, it's Shiga. Shiga, excuse yeah. me, in Shiga. And uh, I, it took me a minute after stepping into their warehouse, into their carpentry studio, for me to realize that this was the only way I was going to build a restaurant, was if they were going to do it.
2: Mm.
4: And so that's how it happened.
2: Right. And your artist background, who studied knowledge of art, may have pushed you towards that direction Oh, as well.
4: absolutely. And uh, actually, the the... the the most important thing for David and I, when we built this restaurant was we knew that Naz's cuisine was so special. Mm. And we knew that there was a lot of sushi restaurants opening in New York. And we knew that it was something that if we didn't do something unique and real to ourselves, that it was just going to get lost in the, Mm. you know, in the crowd. And, um, and I knew that I knew that whatever we did, it had to live up to the quality of Naz's personality and Naz's skill. Mm. So it wasn't it wasn't going to be enough to do to you know to just build a restaurant. Mm. It had to be something that was as important as what he was doing.
2: Right? Interesting. Because yeah. I I first time I saw your restaurant, this is something else. Because <laughs> you really feel the weight of tradition and all those details. But uh, it's interesting that your childhood friend's father had that kind of connection, too. Yeah. So it sounds like everything's the based on destiny.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yanagi-san, if you're listening, thank you very much. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. Okay, so let's take a quick break here. And uh, when we come back, we'll discuss uh, Nozu-san's unique style of sushi. So please stay with us.
1: Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corrin.com.
0: Hey, this is Michael Harlan Turkel from the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I've been with the station for over eight years, 350 shows, and it is the most consistent thing in my life. Every Tuesday at three, I know to be here in studio, but I also get the the privilege of meeting such amazing people, artists, artisans within the industry. get to learn a new factoid, a a new way of life from these wonderful people. And I hope you do too by listening and that you donate to our summer drive. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and click on the beating heart. And we'd even appreciate monthly recurring donations to any show on the network you could designate to the food scene, the speakeasy, and that many more.
2: Welcome back. you Are listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from the studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn? I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guests today are David and Joshua Fouke, the two brothers who opened the authentic 8 seat sushi restaurant in Upper East Side called the Sushi Nozu in March this year, Uh, with Chef Nozomabe, whose nickname is Nozu. So, um, I don't know who can answer this question, but uh, you serve Edomae Sushi at the Sushi Nozu. So, uh, for listeners who are not familiar with the term, what is Edomae Sushi?
6: Edomae is like the most oldest sushi style in Japan. Like um, fish, everything cooked, preserved, no raw, Asian. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's most oldest style.
2: Mm. And the Edo is, means Tokyo, so the fish basically was developed in area, in Tokyo area.
4: Yeah, well, this is like a a, a funny conversation you'll always hear around sushi counter, a, a big argument about what does it really mean to be an Edo-Mai-style sushi restaurant. And everybody has a, a sort of different idea. And the truth is, uh, for a restaurant to be 100% pure Edo-Mai, they would like you just mentioned, have to, in fact, only be using fish from Tokyo Bay. Mm. And I'm not even sure that there's a a sushi restaurant left in Tokyo that only uses fish from Tokyo Mm. Bay. So in that sense, to be truly Edomai is maybe more so uh, a philosophy than anything else. Mm. And um, I won't be the one who goes on the air and tries to give a definitive answer (laughs) of what it means. Uh, What I will tell you is that although we are uh, proudly calling ourselves an Edomai-style restaurant, Nas is not afraid to use uh, sort of Western techniques that he's picked up over the years mm. and Western ingredients and French dishes. Uh, we've sort of... Uh, we've accidentally turned one of our signature dishes into a, a French fusion dish. Mm. <laughs> we Nas has uh, started, started serving... Um, uh, Akaza ebi, mm-hmm. langoustine, Scottish langoustines on the menu, and uh, our restaurant has very little waste. And we were we were finding that we couldn't use the shells from the langoustines for anything, and Naz had the idea to reduce them and turn them into a bouillabaisse. Mm. And so now we we quite often will finish off the otsumami portion of the. Uh, omakase with a sort of a bouillabaisse Mm. which i reckon you would never find in a true edumai style restaurant Mm. (laughs) so
2: right so um yeah so the idea of edumai in the modern sense in my opinion as far as you have the best ingredients from local what's available so it can be Edomai. It's not, it's not uh, like Long Island edomai or something yeah. like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the idea of the best ingredients yeah. available. Because um, when Edomai was developed, there's no refrigeration. Yes. So you have to have the best, freshest fish exactly. on the bay. So I think that's the same idea. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, I think I remember that when I had uh, the dinner, uh, there is uh, not the bouillabaisse, but the same Scottish uh, shrimp for the mm-hmm. prawn. And uh, so Nordson said... Well, he only gets um, the all those uh, like um frozen version of uh, seafood, which is possible because otherwise you're eating that flavor. Yes. And also because Scottish one doesn't come in the sawdust, which leaves a flavor on the meat, that was oh that's is the craftsmanship mm-hmm. we're talking about. So I was very impressed. So Okay, um, so uh, so what kind of menu uh, do you offer at Sushinazu?
6: So um, I always decide a menu. I'm thinking over season. Mm. So for example, summertime, customer people need something freshness, like acid and cold dish. Mm. So winter, people need something warm, um, hot know, oily dish so mm. so i was thinking about the uh, season also i always check the quality of the fish on mm. the day right and then yeah and then i decide a menu
2: mm so when i was there there were like um 5 6 um, appetizers various including the kind of like a the western mm. style flavor and uh, followed by 12 to 15 sushi but yes. the nigiri mm see. so um so it changes every day
4: yes it doesn't only change every day it actually even changes between our two seatings sometimes oh my god the 6 p.m will very often uh have one or two different appetizers and one or two different igiri mm-hmm. than the 9 p.m seating uh i've never asked Nas why but that's not my job to ask <laughs> <laughs> why is that
2: let's just make it <laughs> sure why why uh,
4: it's to make my life more difficult with the menus <laughs> mm. And, uh, and I, I think it's important to mention also because uh, especially Westerners and New Yorkers, our ideas, our ideas of seasonality are very different. Uh, we think of seasons as just summer, spring, fall, and winter. When in reality, uh, maybe more so for a sushi chef than anyone else, there's micro-seasonality. Mm. You know, there are seasons that can be broken down into two or three weeks. Right. There's ingredients that, you know, Nas is looking forward to using between June 1st and June 21st mm. that, you know, July 1st won't be available anymore. Right. So we've never, I, I think we can, I think I can say we have never served the same menu twice. Mm. And... Um, and every day is a surprise for us, just Aye. as much as it is for the customer.
2: Mm, that's amazing, and you can get to taste.
4: <laughs> I, you know what? I get that question a lot, and David and I—I've uh, eaten at the restaurant now uh, three times, and David has eaten there three times as well. So I wish I was eating, I was mm. tasting every day. But <laughs> yeah.
2: well, that means that you are good management.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I—I tell when my customers ask that, I tell them I actually—and it's true—I really think I would get—I I get more joy out of watching. Uh, others enjoy it than I imagine I would out of myself enjoying it
2: mm. right okay and uh, so by the way uh, Nozu-san your sushi is authentic but you incorporate new elements mm-hmm. uh, in, in addition to that bouillabaisse that kind of idea but yeah. maybe you can give us some more uh, examples of the, your originality
6: I try to find something like a new style mm. yeah but I don't want to make something fusion dish so I want to keep uh, traditional of my style, but we always try to find something new ingredients. So, for example, one of our signature dish, octopus with hummus pivoli. Mm. So usually octopus uh, stewed with red beans. Mm. It's a common Japanese food, but I can't find uh, Japanese red beans in the New York, so that's why I find uh, chickpea instead mm. of the red beans. Yeah.
2: I really enjoyed the creaminess. That was a new discovery. Mm. That makes sense, totally. No.
6: So we always something, our new, not style.
2: Mm. Yeah. And it never repeats. Always new. <laughs> okay. Um, so I heard that you, you f- used the fresh rice for your sushi instead of uh, standard, uh, yep. somewhat aged rice. So why do you do that?
6: Uh, So mostly sushi chef using komai, Mm. which is a dry rice, but we use the shinmai, which is a fresh rice. So shinmai is a very moist, a lot of sweeter, more than komai. So however, after mixing the vinegar rice, shinmai will be a little bit sticky.
5: Mm.
6: Sticky, so uh, it has to be harder to make good sushi. But our rice farmer is making good shinmai for uh, sushi chef. Mm. so he's thinking what is the best rice how to keep good quality after mixing the vinegar even the shinmai so that's why I use his rice Mm. so So he
2: developed a new kind of species
6: yeah Josh and I went to his former place so we know how do they make rice so we know they are so much passionate interesting
2: wow okay and uh, so also so the there's a behind the counter. There's a interesting freezer, and uh, it's like beautiful. Not yeah. just beautiful, but it's <clears> very interesting. It's yeah. yeah, a refrigerator. Okay. Yeah, refrigerator. Okay. So how how do you describe what is it and how does it work?
6: Uh, okay, so um, regular refrigerator is too cold for the fish. Is but our ice chest is not electronic. We use big ice cube on the top of the ice chest. And cool air coming from uh, ice, it's softer than regular refrigerator. Mm. Also can keep fish moist in.
2: Right. Yeah. So Refrigerators
6: uh, tend to dry out fish a lot.
2: Because mm, of uh, the air coming. Exactly. In. Right. Dry out
6: everything. Dry fish. out everything. It's mm. the best way to maintain fish.
2: Wow. But it's not usually available like.
4: oh no no yeah I mean it,
6: it was uh, we weren't even sure
4: if we could get one it, it, it was um, it was a craftsman in Tokyo who makes very few of them a year and he's really picky about who he works with and actually usually he 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 has to try the um, Itamai's sushi mm. before agreeing to work with them oh. and uh, through some miracle of God uh, I got his contact information, and sent it to Nas, and had Nas uh, handwrite him a letter, asking him if explained to him our concept and what we were trying to do to New York, and asking him basically asking him if he wanted to be a part of it.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And so we organized a trip around. Uh, we, we went to Tokyo, with a lot of other purposes in mind, but really with the uh, big 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 idea of it, having him agree, making us one of these uh, ice chests. And uh, he obliged, and we were able to do it, and we we're very thankful that mm. he agreed to do it, and, I... and we patiently await him to come to the restaurant. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I even cannot imagine. I don't know how many uh, that it's called the Himura exactly. right, producers exist in Japan either. Yeah. So wow
6: the only as in United States I think
2: you
4: know sushi uh, uh, show there's the, no you know what oh. I have to go on the record a as saying, there's a <laughs> continental one, there's States. one in Hawaii there is mm. one in Hawaii and I, I've noticed some people True. on Sushi the, on the yeah. Na's Instagram have made a point to uh, point mm. that out to us mm. so call there, it the continental United States. it's the continental <laughs> United States <laughs>
3: right.
2: I
4: really didn't know by the way until after someone
3: had mentioned it
2: but. Right. Oh, it was just one <laughs> in the East Coast that should be yeah, enough even <laughs>
3: Uh-huh. On the mainland,
2: yeah. right? And uh, okay, so the so you have only two seatings per night, six and nine, right? So what's the point of serving a group of customers together at the same time?
4: Oh, it's a, it's there's a very practical answer to that. Uh, you know, David and I uh, and Naz, we had a, a huge decision to make when we started the restaurant. Uh, was how many seats are we going to put at the counter? And frequently in New York, you'll see more than ten seats. And uh, as soon as you surpass a certain number, it's very difficult to maintain uh, a certain quality. At the very least, it's very hard for one chef to take care of uh, that many people. You can certainly maintain a high standard of quality, but uh, it was very important to us that Nas was the one taking care of everybody. Mm. And we, through experimentation, through catering, and uh, obviously through his 18 years of experience, were able to deduce that eight was the magic number. Mm. And uh, the way Nas courses out his otsumami and the way he does his nigiri and how everything is prepared very much in a specific way it would be almost impossible for Nas to serve people in a scattered uh, mm. arrangement. You know, if two people showed up at six and two at seven thirty and four at eight, he wouldn't. Uh, he would not be able to to sort of perform mm. uh, the show at such a consistently high level as Aye. he has
2: been. Yeah. So when I dined there, I really enjoyed. You know, because he was able to focus on what he does. At the same time, it's like a show, mm. and the customers can see. And uh and also his attention is hundred percent on what he's doing. And also at the end of the dinner there's a communal sense, the sharing, admiring the exactly. what it was. So yeah, I thought it was really a really great idea. So uh but the menu price is three hundred dollars including gratuity, which is great. But um, um you know, and I think people might think it's super expensive. Um, and there are expensive sushi restaurants, but I think I thought it was valuable. So what value do you think, in your opinion, offering for $300?
4: Yeah. So um, we set out to transport people. Uh, We're more so in the transportation business than we are in any other business. Mm. And I say that uh, because really the goal at Sushi Nas is for you to forget that you're in New York City and that you had a long work day. And for you... For just a few hours, uh, experience something absolutely new and mm. unique and peaceful that happens to include a really good food. And uh, this idea of, of it being a show, uh, uh, almost a theatrical performance, is something that brings a lot of value to mm. it. I don't want people to you know weigh the food and say, I just paid $300 and got this much food. Mm. I want people to learn about Japan. I want people to visit Japan. I want people to see what I saw in Nas the first time I saw him work, that sense of passion, and, and I want people to be inspired. Uh, you know, we have 40 feet of storefront in the restaurant, which is crazy in New York. It's a lot of storefront. Most people would have floor-to-ceiling windows and outdoor seating, and, and we have just a big uh, white wall. Mm. And it's really because I want you to lose your sense of where you are for a couple hours. And um, I think that's a big part of where the value is. Not to mention the quality of the food is, mm-hmm. uh, as far as I'm concerned, as exceptional as you'll find anywhere else in mm. the United States.
2: Right. And there's a conversation, too, that little thing, like, you know, the, the prawn in the soul dust or not, that kind of thing. we educated. I, I go... Th- I learned so much after the dinner that kind of thing too so but uh, so the transportation of course includes the amazing decor we mentioned already but uh, maybe you can uh, um, tell us the the concept design concept and some details
4: yeah so the roots of the design are in uh, what's referred to as uh, sukiya style architecture which is a, a tea room style of architecture that was very popular in the Edo period and um sukiya style architecture is—it's almost like a religious architecture in that it follows a, a very specific uh, tenet of rules, a lot like you might find in Western religious architecture. You know, I'm—I'm I'm not saying it looks anything like Gothic architecture, but there's sort of when you're building—you know—when these uh, architects were building these churches in the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, they were following hundreds of years of tradition of how things were done. And in Sukiya-style architecture, you find a lot of that sort of uh, his, historical, pers- uh, preserving a so- sense of history in the style. Mm-hmm. And, and sort of the big, most important components of it are the fact that it only uses natural elements. So you only find sand, stone, and wood. Uh, that very specific woods can be placed in very specific places. Uh, balances in light. Uh, finding harmony and imbalances so for example our counter behind the counter are these two big beautiful pillars of uh, cedar wood that are completely asymmetrical mm. and sort of finding harmony in that asymmetry is something that's very important in Sukiya style architecture and in Japanese aesthetics in general mm. and so you're you're confronted with a lot of paradox in Sukiya style architecture mm. and um and so yeah that's sort of the the, the root of of the the design mm. and and like we mentioned earlier the the restaurant was actually built in Japan right. so you're, you're face-to-face, you're touching wood that not so long ago was you know more than 5,000 miles away. Mm. And, and it's all very textural. There's different textures everywhere. And, and we encourage people to touch everything and to feel it with their hands. And there's a presence of the artists and the carpenters that you don't necessarily find mm. in Western-style architecture.
2: Right. Yeah, it's such a tranquility.
4: Yeah, really a sense of nature and balance and harmony that is... Mm. It's very unique.
2: Right. I was thinking like, you know, it's like a whole Brooklyn thing going. There's a nice old warehouse factory style mm. and you can transport to somewhere else. Oh, yeah. And then but somehow you managed to build the wheel skier in the middle of New York City. And uh, I really enjoyed being there. Thank so. you. Um, and also the serving vessels, you have the same level of attention. Right.
4: Yeah. Well, you, the first one of the first questions you asked about what were the hardest parts? Actually, my mind also jumped to that. I mean, we we spent almost four years uh, traveling around Japan, uh, finding the right vessels, mm. and we have vessels that represent, uh, you know, five different uh, centuries of Japanese ceramics mm. that range from every different style under the sun, and. Um, And that's something that that we're all very, very, very proud of.
2: Mm, Right. And what I really enjoyed was usually if you go to Kyoto or those places and you see it, put it in your hand, ah, I wish I could own it. But you eat something right on it. So that was a precious experience, I think. Yeah. But uh, who come to your restaurant? Who are your customers?
4: Um, We have... a. uh, Everybody, every different type of person comes to our restaurant. Uh, I think the biggest surprise to us uh, is that opening on the Upper East Side, I think we all sort of expected uh, a predominantly Upper East Side clientele. Mm. But we have people coming from all around the world. I mean, from from downtown to Hong Kong (laughs) to Mm. uh, France and Spain and... Argentina and <laughs> we've
2: had yeah. people from mm. That's uh, you know the at the beginning I said they're more expensive sushi restaurants in New York City especially, mm. but I really think there's a maturity of customers' perception about sushi, right So that's the your place is uh, the proof of it. So how do you predict the future of sushi in the states?
3: Future of sushi in the states Wow.
2: Well, anywhere globally
3: well sushi in the states has changed a lot in the mm. last 10 years from mm. obviously from 40 years ago when the first sushi came to New York but now I think when we were first opened Josh was concerned that uh, there would be other people serving our style of sushi and that it would make the mystique of our Edomai style sushi or our take on Edomai style sushi for some reason less interesting less interesting <laughs> but I think it's the opposite I think what you need is you need people to educate like you just said. Mature, grow up, Mm. grow out of a maki California roll to a piece of nigiri to then a piece of, you know, sashimi. And then once you've had the whole entry level, you start trying omakase and Mm. then you start seeing the different ways. And I think that New York is obviously the forefront of all cuisine probably in the world. Mm. So I think that from New York outside of Japan... I think everything will spread. So I think the more Edomai-style, traditionally Mm. legitimate restaurants that open here, you'll start seeing some in Los Angeles. You'll start probably seeing some in San Francisco. Hopefully, maybe Sushi Nas one day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So
4: I have to say, David, throughout this whole process, was sort of like our... uh, He was the cornerstone of hope and faith through it all. Because in the four years that we tried to open this, a lot of things almost went really bad really mm. wrong. Well. <laughs> and david was and i i had a lot of doubt you know again like david mentioned i had a lot of doubt about if this was too traditional for new yorkers if this was especially with you know there there is an emphasis on aging but it's not what defines us <laughs> and uh, i was worried that people were going to be scared of that and david and and david was always the one to tell me like if it's as good as we know not is, it is and people keep educating themselves, and more like restaurants like this open up. It's only going to become uh, more interesting to people. Mm-hmm. And and I have to say now, you know, when you ask about the future of sushi, especially in New York, the future is going towards this more traditional style. There mm-hmm. was a five-year period where uh, this sort of New York omaka- New York style omakase was booming. Mm-hmm. And uh, in in the last year alone, we've had you know uh, shoji. Uchu uh, Onodera Onodera, Mm. Amane Mm. are four restaurants that are absolutely Tokyo style Mm. I mean you know as much Mm. as you can be in New York Tokyo style restaurants and you look at the two years before that and it was you know like that downtown style Mm (laughs) and so it's great I think that's I think that's going to drive a lot of interest for people going to Japan. I think a lot more people now are going to Japan than were going five years ago, mm. and then they come back and they they're looking for that. Right. You know.
2: So the I think a while ago the Japanese government a the discussion that worried about Japanese sushi restaurants not owned or understood by um, even the owners. Mm. So that kind of thing. It's great sushi is popular, but. Where is the culture being communicated yeah. properly? So I really like the Nozo because this is so right. I'm learning so much from this dining experience, a couple hours. Yeah, so.
4: Yeah. I have to say some of the more rewarding moments are when our Japanese customers who live in Japan come to the restaurant. And I, I I'm not sure what their expectations were, but I think that they are so happy to see that what we're doing is... That we're doing what we're doing, and and that's really rewarding for I know that's really rewarding for Nas and I when we're able to, you know, show somebody who it doesn't live in New York that listen we're we can do it right here also like we're showing people Mm -hmm. you know how it can be done in New York
5: right yeah
3: nowadays people you know being a global city people from all over are gonna come and eat sushi in New York. Just doesn't mean that we can't be the best sushi restaurant in the world. Being in New York, they say the best pizza restaurant is in Tokyo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah. if a guy can open uh, the best pizzeria in the world in Tokyo, we can open the, hopefully you know the best sushi restaurant mm. in the world in New York, and that's what we're trying to do.
2: Right, I think it's a focus. Like for instance, I went to one of those uh, sushi restaurants in Japan, and it was. I heard sushi restaurants make money fairly well in Japan too. But there's no focus. Like you can feel, it's it's a business. Oh yeah, right. So it's not the craftsmanship. So you that's it doesn't matter where you are. It's just craftsmanship, which exactly. is another. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Right. So what are you guys planning?
4: Oh, we just want this to get better every day. Uh, we th- t- right now we're planning for tonight's service yeah. <laughs> right. tomorrow yeah. we're going to plan for tomorrow's
6: service. <laughs> I won't keep the quality. Mm.
4: yeah
2: right well yeah. it must be hard to rebuild a, another set of little uh, skier rooms yeah. in another place. The
3: what? good thing now is we know what to do more or less. We have mm. an idea, not we don't know exactly, but mm.
2: you can see it the good The <laughs> most
3: important thing is to take your time,
2: mm. you know
3: Danny Meyer. He's obviously very important for a lot of people in his business. And if you read his book, he was great and he built an amazing empire, but it was one step at a time. Mm. He opened one restaurant, made sure that it was great and that it was an institution, and then he developed. So hopefully, you know, with Nas, at least with me, it was like that. Three year, three years I spent in one restaurant, and now I, three years is another one. Hopefully maybe in three years there'll be another one. Mm. But definitely we don't need to rush and hopefully become, like I said, the best restaurant right. that we can be.
2: Well, I think it's going to happen. So, good luck. Thank you. All right. uh, so, thank you for joining us today. Um, okay, so listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics to guests, please contact us. Japan heritage Heritage Radio, radio Network.org uh, or com. Oh, before I forget, how the listeners can get to know your, the details of nozu and an update
4: oh well uh, you can uh, follow us on social media we have an Instagram account at sushi Naz NYC we're posting really wonderful photos and uh, and we, we try to explain a lot of what Na's process is like and all about our ceramics and the design of the restaurant through that medium and then we just launched our full website as well which which does a, a, a fantastic job of answering uh all the questions you would have about, about sushi naz about naz himself and mm. and so I, I would start there. Great. <laughs>
2: all right. So all right. So the uh again, thank you for coming.
4: Thank you for having yeah, us. and
2: uh, will keep us posted. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So the Japanese is live on three a.m. three at three p.m. on Mondays, and always available at heritageveterannetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. And the uh, engineer today is uh, David Tadeshore. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.